Welcome, everyone, to the John Top of It podcast. My name is John Meisberg. There's uh, my little lower third. <laughs> and today we have my guest, Brianna Wilson. Uh, she has a background in mindful-based transpersonal counseling. Uh, Brianna, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So for the viewers out there, if you're interested in this topic of uh, working on your mental health, uh, please like this video and share it with your friends so more people can see it. And if you have any questions about mental health, please write them in the comments and we'll answer them at the end of the episode. So let's get started. All right. Uh, let's start with the first question that I think a lot of people are thinking about, which is what is transpersonal counseling? I don't know how many people are familiar with that term. Yeah, I think most people are like, what is that? Um, and this is something that I get a lot. Um, but basically, I always go back to kind of the root word. So transpersonal psychology is beyond the self. Transpersonal is beyond the self. Um, so that starts to include anything spiritual, anything transcendent. And we're talking altered states work. Um, we learned a lot about hypnosis and its clinical uses. Um I use different interventions that could be considered altered states work um, and just generally being kind of open to whatever is in the human experience, whether that is like what's directly in front of them or kind of outward or in that spiritual extra realm. Hmm. Okay. And what made you interested in studying this? I originally got into this because I wanted to go to a particular school that mm. was offering this. Um, I wanted to get a counseling degree from Naropa University in Colorado. Um, and just it just so happened that as I was looking at this, they had just started a brand new hybrid program, so online and in person. So I was able to mostly be here in Seattle doing the coursework. And then every other month or so, I'd fly into Colorado and be with my cohort and, and do the in-person um, pieces of learning how to be a therapist. So that was a big piece what was going to the school because Naropa's whole thing is transform yourself, transform the world. Mm -hmm. um, that's their motto. And they do a lot of like interpersonal and personal work for the people that become therapists through them. Um, since there's this the belief there that you need to be able to do your own work before you can help other people do their work. Sure. Um, and that makes sense to me. But what I don't get is like, what did you see about transpersonal counseling that was special uh, compared to just regular counseling that most people, I guess, are familiar with? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. I think that actually comes back more to the mindfulness-based part of it. Um, that was really a big draw, was being able to go and learn how to meditate and use meditation in my personal life and in my practice and be able to start making that mind-body awareness connection um, that had been not really present as much for me as that was really healing. Mm -hmm. So do you, did you find that throughout your education that you developed more of that? Oh yeah, definitely. If someone had asked me before grad school, Hey, where are you feeling that in your body? I'd be like, what, what body? <laughs> I'm not just a floating head. Mm -hmm. I don't understand. Uh -huh. Um, so I definitely started. So wait, what's to your answer now? <laughs> um, I mean, I have more of a sense of like, oh, like there's some tightness in my chest because I'm really nervous or, uh -huh. you know, kind of that. Butterflies you feel more self-aware. 
Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay. Um, so what, what do you currently do in your line of work? What do you do with this? Or so, do, how, do you use this? Yes. Um, so I am a therapist, um, psychotherapist part-time, um, I guess full-time. That's the only thing that I'm doing right now. Um, and I used to be at an agency working with kids and teens, and now I'm in a group private practice working with um, teens and up. Um, so that's been a little bit of an adjustment, but it's still a lot of the same work just now over Zoom. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, okay. What, I guess, I think there's a lot of people out there that, um, probably have a counselor. They, they talk to a therapist. Um, is transpersonal counseling something that you can specifically look for in like psychology today? And if so, like you just look for the word transpersonal in as a keyword, is that how someone would go about finding somebody? And why could you potentially like sell somebody out there on this? Like, why would they seek out transpersonal counseling over someone who specializes in something else? Like, what would you say to them? Well, that's a I don't. Hmm. Or is it not a one size fits all? It's like different counselors fit different needs for different people, but. For, I guess maybe a better question is when would a transpersonal counselor be the most suitable for somebody? I think that, so yes, you can search for transpersonal on like psychology today or therapy yeah. den or anything like that. Uh-huh. Um, when would you choose a transpersonal counselor? I think that if you wanted to be exploring some of the spiritual aspects of your life and, and wanted someone that you knew absolutely wasn't going to judge you and would be able to speak to those things, um, that would be, a useful part of that as well as um, if you're wanting to do more of that like mind body work or like altered states work or trance work like if you wanted to work with clinical hypnosis um, you would definitely want to have someone that has been like certified through the big hypnosis boards and through the APA and all of that but um, I want someone to hypnotize me yeah <laughs> I mean just interesting just I would want somebody to hypnotize me, but also record it so that mm. I could then watch it and believe that it's real. I mean, I like, I guess I've seen other people do it, but it's like, I think it would be a totally different experience to watch a video of myself being hypnotized to be mm-hmm. like, wow, they really did do that to me, you know? Well, yeah. So I think that's also like one of the misconceptions about hypnosis <laughs> is that it's something that someone does to you. Uh. Um, and actually, we spent a lot of time learning from um, the previous director of the hypnosis department of the American Psychological Association um, in my grad program. And he has done a lot of research and work on empathy actually being the basis of hypnosis and how it works so like there has to be some level of that empathetic resonance between you and the person that is um doing the induction or like leading you through this process um but i wouldn't say it's something that they're doing to you there's you always have a choice even Mm -hmm. when you're in a trance state oh you're saying you're aware Mm -hmm. okay but you're like voluntarily um submitting yourself or like making yourself open to um persuasion right okay and i think some people might have different levels of that too or levels of how much it feels like that Mm -hmm. i'm a low hypnotizable so there's like different stages there's like Uh, low medium high hypnotizable people that are are more easily 
pulled into or more easily going into trance state. Mm. Um, so I am not one of those people. I don't know if it's because of that like lack of mind-body connection that I've had that I've been working on. Um, but there's a lot of resistance in me to like being in that vulnerable place. Um, yeah, same. So the only experience I've had with hypnosis is I think I went to like a fair one time and I saw some guy get on a stage and start pulling people from the crowd up there to like, right. you know, do the clock thing. And mm -hmm. I don't know. And I just remember being like, that's a bunch of bull. But I was a kid right. back then. I was like, I don't believe this. But but then hearing that it's used in actual therapy has make it made me think twice about that <laughs> initial stance that I took. Right. And and people that do like clinical hypnosis definitely have a, a certain view of performative hypnosis um, because it does kind of give clinical hypnosis a bad reputation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But I think that it's more like you could think of hypnosis as being more like guided imagery almost like i've done some like guided imagery meditations that have a very similar like induction where you're using like mindfulness to kind of bring your body into a relaxed state and that's really a lot of what hypnosis is is like bringing the body into that relaxed state and that trance state with you um and so it's not as scary as as one might think hmm yeah i think the scary part would be letting somebody take over your mind and then putting something in there that doesn't you don't want there. But if it, you're working with a, a professional that you trust, I would imagine there is agreed upon programming. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Usually uh, someone that's using hypnosis in a clinical setting will kind of go over exactly what is about to happen, like the types of things that they're about to say to you. They might say, like, oh, I'm going to hold back a hypnotic suggestion so you're not, like, anticipating that in the moment, but it's going to be, like, in this realm of, you know, like, what we're working on. It's not going to be, like, you know, every time I say this, you're going to, you know, clap your hands or whatever. Um, so they're going to be very clear with you about what is about to happen ahead of time. Okay. Have, is this something that you've done personally? Like, you've let you've been hypnotized mm -hmm. but it's just not as effective on on you personally because of your your walls or <laughs> right yeah. yeah okay so i think that there's there's different ways that hypnosis can affect people and so i've done um we in grad school on each other we administered like a hypnotic test basically to kind of determine like if you're a low medium high hypnotizable like what ways are you um showing up because some people have like like visions like visual pieces of it um some people there's more of like a physical sensation part of it some people have a really sexual reaction to it some people Whoa. you know so there's a lot of different ways that people um can show up in an altered state so for me, it's just like, I feel really relaxed. Great. What's the deal with this? The clock? Is this, a, is this just like a, is this real or not? That like, if you look at these pictures, like oh, the, the pendulum. The, yeah. Why does that show up so much? Like, I feel like it's so commonplace. When I think of hypnosis, if we were playing Family Feud, the first thing that I would say, if you're like top five answers for hypnosis, I'd be like that, that clock on the rope. Mm -hmm. Like, what is that? What is that? Is that something that? they using a clinical setting or is this just like what people think of when they 
when they think of hypnosis or hypnotherapy. So it's not how I learned how to administer yeah. hypnosis or, or do that process. Um, I, if I were to try and theorize about it, and I could be totally wrong, there might be something about like the eye movement that's helpful. Oh. Because like right now, something that's really big in the mental health community is EMDR, which is like eye movement um, I desensitization. Had, I had desensitization? a... How do you say that word? Um, um, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, I had a... Uh, a counselor um, provide me the option to do that where they you follow a light bar. Mm -hmm. I haven't done it, but she was saying that it really helps some of her patients. Mm -hmm. you, do you have experience with that thing? or I actually haven't done EMDR myself. It's something that I would like to try at some point. Um, but it's just not... Do you I understand really... how it works? Here's a picture for people out there that want to see. Let's see. It looks like a gigantic connect light for mm -hmm. like the Xbox. <laughs> yeah. Look at that thing. And then she's holding those paddles too. And, and the, I think that those can buzz back and forth as well. Mm -hmm. So I am not 100%. I'm not trained on this at all. I don't have much experience with it. It's pretty um, cool. Right. But I think there's something about the eye movement or like the bilateral, sorry, the bilateral movement um, that can really help our brain like, this is something that I use in my clients is, like, the bilateral hug, mm -hmm. where, like, you kind of, like, squeeze both sides of your body. Because if you cross sides of your body, it helps your brain move out of, like, that fight-flight, like, limbic system response and back into the executive functioning, like, prefrontal cortex. So there might be something around that where if you're talking about something really traumatic and you're, like, doing the light thing, it might be helping like, obviously, you're using other self-soothing and resourcing tools ahead of time, but it might help be able to hmm. have continued regulation during that time. Interesting. So, similar to the clock, in mm -hmm. a way. The back and forth, right? Yeah. That relaxation piece. Interesting. Right. Wow. So much to know about mental health that I do not know. <laughs> yeah. It's a wild, wild world. <laughs> There's a lot. Um, so... I think a great uh, segue for us to, to go down is that, you know, we're all experiencing this pandemic together this year. Um, how do you feel the lockdown in America has impacted people's mental health? Oh, it's really tough. Um, I think that a lot of people are much more depressed and much less motivated than typical than what is typical. Um, there's a lot more anxiety and people are feeling that that's really exacerbated because of the sense of isolation um, and this lack of connection with other people. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think partially for me, um, I think there is like a depression and an angst based on, not knowing what's going to happen in the future as well. Like mm -hmm. feeling like a, a, a sense of like a loss of hope of mm -hmm. about like, you know, I, cause I think earlier this year I, I would think, Oh, may, uh, if everyone gets a vaccine, everything will go back to normal. And then it's, it's been like a whole year. And then people are like, Oh, well, some people don't want it. Some people don't trust the people giving it. Mm -hmm. And even if people, like we're not going to be able to get everyone to take it or maybe it won't be ready in time. And, and, and so I just, it feels like we're not 
out of the woods. We're not close to being out of the woods. And I think that, like, not knowing how the future is going to be to me is like the most, the most uh, depressing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of factors that are kind of affecting that like uncertain future. Yeah, and we really don't like that. There's a lot of change and a lot of. Um, discomfort in sitting in the unknown because it's not something that we really have to do a lot especially on this scale yeah um like especially with what's going on in the country politically as well as the pandemic and like all these other things that have been going on since march it's a lot it's a heavy heavy load for people and they're coming face to face with like really the parts of humanity that we don't have to struggle with a whole lot Mm -hmm. these days we're not familiar Mm mm-hmm how are you personally doing? How has this affected you? I think that there was a period of time in the beginning where I was like really enjoying just being home all the time and like wearing my pajamas and like all that kind of stuff and just kind of really chilling out. Um, but then over time, like when that gets more monotonous and then again, I had a similar thing with you. I was like, Oh, you know, like we're going to get through this year and we're going to have the vaccine. And everything's going to be fine. Like it felt like a light at the end of the tunnel. And now it's like, well, it keeps kind of moving farther and farther away. The goalpost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just like, oh, now I feel like people are talking like things won't start to go back to normal until like 2022. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Yeah. That's hard. Like, I don't know if I can get through that here. <laughs> yeah. It sucks. Yeah. At least it seems like because... So after that point of of kind of just dragging along, kind of enjoying it and then getting kind of tired of it and then kind of dipping a little bit, um, it was, it started to become really important to have a routine again um, and to engage in in the self-care practices that I knew that I should be doing um, as well as like reaching out to people and making sure that I really prioritized that amount of connection. Um, But yeah, it, it is tough for sure. Something that I wanted to bring up in relation to what you were just saying is, um, while there are these negatives with um, being in lockdown where like you feel socially isolated and lonely and maybe bored or worried about the future, there's also been some noted positives for people. Um, one is that um, people have said, oh, I don't have... I, I don't have to commute to work. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of stress comes down from that and you save time that you can then redirect towards like working out or taking self-care type mm-hmm. practices. Um, and then I found a few articles. One is that um, there was a study done that said that in the UK, mental health uh, actually um, increased in a positive way since the lockdown Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then in japan suicides have actually uh declined Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and i think i think that in japan specifically it's because of their their work culture maybe like Mm -hmm. they're they're getting more of a break than they're used to which has kind of been a huge plus and a wake-up call that like oh maybe we need to like not push ourselves as hard as we were i don't know Mm -hmm. but it's interesting to see it's not so black and white. It's not all bad. There are some positives to everyone being forced to take a long break from the way that we've been living. And perhaps there there can be some some valuable lessons to gain that we can hold on to after this is all over. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I think that uh, people have really started to take a look at work-life balance and how that plays into things. I think mm-hmm. especially... 
um, in U.S. culture, there's there's still that drive of like making things work and like being really busy and and, and working really hard um, and not having as much time. Like you just have to do that to survive, right? And so, uh, or make sure that there's food on the table and having that commuting time back. I mean, some people are commuting like an hour or more each way. That's a yeah. lot of time out of your day. That now, if you've got that back, you're like, oh. I can spend that with my family. I can go to the gym. I can read a book. I can, you know, do all these sorts of things. My bus route was a 90-minute bus route from Seattle to Bellevue. Every day I did it for like three years. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh. Three hours, Meg. It is three hours. What do I do with that three hours? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. My husband was already working from home full-time before the pandemic started. So we'd already kind of seen a little bit of that. Um, But definitely... I've heard from a lot of people that they were able to spend more time on pursuits that they never would have had time for before, like art, um, any sort of expression like that, getting more into cooking, more into um, maximizing like their physical health, um, or even just like spending more time like watching your favorite TV shows or like catching up with friends that you wouldn't have thought to have, like you wouldn't have had time for before. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that this has also forced people to learn how to embrace uh, tools that allow you to interact with people digitally. Mm-hmm. So like z- tools like Zoom have taken off, tools like Discord mm-hmm. for um, gaming and talking to people, just like any, or um, video chatting and just ways to interact with people in a digital way so that we aren't completely socially isolated. I think they've now become so mainstream so well adopted that i think that the it'll be hard for companies to then come out and be like everyone has to be in the office like all the time now i think Mm -hmm. i don't think it's ever going back i think the genie's out of the bottle right yeah like (laughs) we can do this why aren't we yeah exactly and especially when it's probably going to show that you know there might be some people slacking and wasting some time here and there but there's probably um, overall, probably uh, more productivity because people are happier and they have that work-life balance and it probably translates to, you know, overall just better work, uh, better productivity, better culture, better overall, um, just a better overall output for the company, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people that are missing their coworkers or are missing that, that sense of like being able to go somewhere during their day or, you know, be away from their kids or, or you know, whatever that, yeah, that case would be might nice. be. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that being able to have that option is, is really helpful. Like if you like really just need a, a mental health day, um, well, you know, oh, and you still want to get a little bit of work done or you don't want to use PTO or, you know, maybe you just don't want to be like deal with getting into the office that day. Like, I can think it's yeah. it's really useful to have that option. And that's something that's that's near and dear to my heart and being able to work from home um, from previous industries and jobs before I think, uh, becoming a therapist. But yeah. Yeah. I think my ideal work week would be something like, um, like come into the office, maybe Monday and like Wednesday and then have like head down days where I'm working like by myself doing designer development work like Tuesday, Thursday, and then Friday is like a toss up. Like if I need to come in, we come in. If we don't, we stay home kind of Mm -hmm. thing. But like maybe do like a 50-50 split 
because there are days where when I'm working, I need to just do work. And it doesn't matter if I'm on the moon or if I'm in the op- like, it doesn't matter where I am. I just seem to work on my computer. And then there are days where like, I really feel like it would be more productive for everyone if we all got into a room together and talked it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there are, I think, I, I mean, I guess that it depends on the industry that you work in clearly. Right. I mean, like if you work with clients, well, even if you work with clients now, they're me- everything's telehealth now. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess it depends on, um, I guess it depends on the industry, but I don't know. Um, I, I, if you're introverted or extroverted, I think that that might also play into how much you miss the office and your coworkers and those interactions. Mm-hmm. Like, And I know my understanding of those terms is that even introverted people like to socialize, but they get drained quicker, mm-hmm. right? right? So, um, I th- I see myself more of an extrovert. So I do miss people. I do miss interacting with people, but I also value the extra time I have. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's kind of like I don't know. I don't know. I like yeah. both. Right. Me too. I'm pr- pretty ambiverted. Like I'm. I can go either way. Mm. Um, and there are definitely, yeah times when i i'm happy to just stay in with my husband and, and watch tv and, and other times when i'm like okay let's plan something like let's you know get on video and, and do something or i've noticed too that um there's been more like reaching out to others like i have come from a place where i really hate using the phone um and i don't know i feel like there's like this small generational pocket of people that are like you know what i really hate talking on the phone like let's just text instead um kind of coming from that at least for me coming from that place of msn messenger like aol or like those things growing up and just not having that like oh i can just call my friend and see what they're doing um but i found myself doing that a little bit more like hey like i'm gonna call you and you know if you're busy don't answer let me leave you a voicemail because i just want you to know that i'm thinking about you and you know if it's a good time let's chat but that's a a hard sell even today so it's a little easier to plan a a zoom chat it's so weird i feel like it never used to be this way, but if I call somebody, sometimes I feel like I scare them a little bit. They're like, oh, you're calling? <laughs> hey, what's happened? I, people, I don't think people are used to phone calls, at least. I, I mean, it's a generational thing. It's weird. Um, and I, th- I guess texting is okay. It's, it's, it works and it lets people respond in their own time. But I think like if you're trying to have like a good conversation with somebody, having their undivided attention is just so nice. Like even like this format of a podcast like you're here with me mm-hmm. i know that you're listening to me your t- attention is not divided and i don't think that you can replicate this kind of conversation over facebook messenger like you're just people are too distracted they're they're splitting their attention they're thinking about other things and it's just it's just never going to be the same kind of quality of a conversation and it's mm-hmm. i think at least a phone call gets closer to that mm-hmm Phone calls are really hard for me because I'm such a visual processor. Like if if I I think I did a test in school that was like how do you learn and it's like video or like visual audio and uh, mm-hmm. like kinesthetic like mm-hmm. hands on mm-hmm. and I was like visual was like way up here and then it was like kinesthetic was here and then audio was like way down here it was so much lower so it's really hard for me to be on the phone with someone and not be able to see them yeah so video chatting has has changed my life i'm like oh yeah you want to get together for this just you know and on in and i think that with this uh what's it called facebook 
rooms, messenger rooms. Uh, See yeah, this I thing? haven't played have with you, those yet. Uh, it's just so easy. Like you literally just click like create a room and then you select the friends you want to talk to and then they just all pop up. Like it's just a really, I mean, like we've all, we've had Google Hangouts for a while, but it's not really connected to a social media platform. And I think that's what was missing is like, you can just like, I have a bunch of, uh, siblings. I'm, I'm one of six kids. And so like the idea of being able to just like select all your siblings on mm -hmm. Facebook and your parents and hit like Facebook room and then like, boom, everyone from around the country is just there on, on your laptop or your phone. I think like that. It, it couldn't have come at a better time to have right. this type of technology during a pandemic. Um, I've actually uh, tried doing a, a a podcast interview with somebody over Facebook Rooms, but I didn't like the way that the camera was split. I'll have to play with it more. Hmm. But yeah, tools like this and Zoom and yeah, I'm I'm, I'm grateful that we have this stuff because mm -hmm. otherwise. It would be more socially isolating. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it can be maybe a, a little bit... I, I like that there are so many options. Like, there's so many ways to do that. Because if your friend is like, oh, I only have Discord. Or, you know, like, oh, I only have Zoom. Then, you know, there's there's a lot of um, You can always shift to, to something else. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you, well, you have a Facebook. I have a Facebook. Let's do that instead. Yeah. Um... So, I think a common theme that I've noticed that we're talking about is self-care. You know, and reaching out to your friends and family and, and getting that time with them. I think that's one form of self-care. Mm -hmm. What would you say are some other forms of self-care? Oh, there's so many. I mean, self-care can be really dependent on the individual, but I think there are some general things that apply all around. Um, Really, I mean, some people are like, oh, I want to draw myself a nice bath and read a book and, and light candles and, and just really make a nice night for myself. Some people are like, I want to go on a run. Um, some people, their self-care is watching like crappy reality TV for a little <laughs> while and kind of being able to zone out. Uh -huh. um, so My really life depends. is so much better than theirs. That's how right. I feel better. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Or just even that, just, I don't need to think about this. Like it's someone else's problem, not mine right now. Uh -huh. Like it's, it can be when you're intentionally like using those types of tools, like even distraction or, or kind of like, yeah, like zoning out from what's happening can be useful if it's in a, a finite time. Um, and you're aware like, oh yeah, I'm doing this thing on purpose. Mm -hmm. I think a big form of self care that I've been trying to do lately that I'm really bad at is drinking enough water because mm -hmm. I've been told that if you don't drink enough water, you feel dehydrated and that leads to like headaches and all kinds of physiological symptoms that I experience all the time. So water break. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a good plan. I found that for me, my biggest return to self care um, is exercise because if I can get up in the morning and do like a 30 minute workout. I, I am drinking more water because mm -hmm. I'm, you know, sweating and thirsty. Yeah. Um, and then I, I eat breakfast at a normal time and I like go shower and get dressed and I have like this, this start to my day and just obviously the physiological mental health benefits of exercise are, are really there, like getting those brain chemicals moving and yeah. 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 And I think maybe for a lot of people, 
the main issue is carving out that time to practice self-care. Like people, mm-hmm. I think most people know the 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 tactics, the things to do to practice self-care, but what they are maybe struggling with is making sure that they give themselves the block of time to do it. And I've read online that like it if you can to like go to sleep earlier and wake up earlier so that you can have like that hour in the morning to like dedicate it to you, like you mm-hmm. time. And then it's like, you're starting off the day. Um, you know, you've already, uh, you've done your, your workout. You've gotten a, a good shower. You've maybe you've meditated for mm-hmm. a little bit. You've done these things. Maybe you do a gratitude journal. I was reading that, like writing down things you're grateful for and things that you can positive affirmations, like things that you can just, do to st- or maybe just get like a healthy breakfast like things mm-hmm. you can do to start off the f- start off right so that then the rest of your day it's like you've set a good tone right but- i think a lot of that comes down to habits and habit building like our our brains are kind of at a certain point they they become a series of habits yeah you know like i've noticed just how much that a certain environment or a certain sequence of events can trigger like if I'm right now, I'm trying to not eat as much sugar. So mm-hmm. I notice that's that, hard. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Especially when you have like a lot of people in your life that are always trying to like give you stuff. You're like, oh, you're so like I love that no. you're baking, but I know that you're giving this to me because you don't want it in your house. So, um, yeah, but that has definitely happened. No, for me, it's they want to they want to have the experience with you. Like oh. they'll make they're like, let's have cookies together or ice cream right. together or whatever. And it's like it's a. It's a mm-hmm. shared experience. And then if you don't participate, you like bum them out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, that's hard. Um, but yeah. I think that what I was noticing that is like, if I am like sitting in, in the same place, so I'll normally, like if I've, if I've developed a routine where we like sit on the couch and we'll watch a show at night and we'll eat ice cream then if we're trying to cut out the ice cream, but we're still sitting on the couch and watching TV, my brain is like, oh, I really want ice cream. Yeah. And then it's... it's Something's missing. Exactly. <laughs> so then it becomes about like changing that environment or like changing that sequence uh-huh. of habits that leads up to that thing that you're trying to now make a new habit around, yeah. which is not eating ice cream. Yeah. Or replace it with something that's like similar, but mm-hmm. healthier. Yeah. Like, I don't know what that would be. I know. I think, well, I think my, uh, I knew, um... An ex-girlfriend's father, he, what he would do is he would do sh- uh, shaved ice mm. and then like low calorie something on top. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that was like his alternative to losing weight. And it's, you know, whatever you got to do. Um, it's yeah. okay. <laughs> right. Um, I was going to say one of the things that I know about you is that you uh, foster kittens, mm-hmm. cats. And would you consider that a form of self-care, like your experience with your pets? Oh, definitely. Um, It was so... I haven't done that before. And so we fostered like a pregnant mother cat. And then she ended up having... um, Well, she had seven kittens, but five survived. Um, And so having five kittens was an experience. I've never seen kittens that small before. I've never seen a kitten any younger than eight weeks. Um, so seeing them from birth on and like, I had to cut some of their, their umbilical cords and like really helped out with that, um, to some degree. Oh, here's a pick. I found a pick. Oh yeah, there they are. (laughs) 
They're little tiny nuggets. Yep. Um, we actually ended up adopting two of them. Um, the black and white one on the right, and then the the one that looks like black with the white face that's on top of everyone else. What are their names? Um, so the darker one, he's a, actually a tabby. You just can't tell as much here. Um, his name is Mystic, and then Ooh. the one on the right is Pepper. Ooh. But that was a lot of energy. So, and it also it was like a project, right? Like that that part of the self care was like having a purpose or a meaning. So I would like get up and I'd be like, oh, I gotta like go do their cat boxes and I have to make sure they all have food and I've gotta like clean up this and it had it gave me like a routine and a schedule, yeah, um, to adhere to as well as just being able to see them like learn their first steps and like be in the world and and learning about new things was really fun too. So, your mama cat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like she and I, Mama Cat and I, we were a team. Yeah. So. And I think that that's good. I, I can relate in the sense that I just am new father and trying to mm-hmm. uh, raise a baby. And it's very uh, interesting. Um, I think that like, on one hand, yes, like, I like that it's provided my life some structure where like, I have to make sure that I'm doing all these things for him. And it kind of, I, I don't know, I in a way that I'm glad that I had that thing to do. On the other hand, though, um, thinking about what I was saying earlier with carving out like time for yourself to practice self-care, I feel like I've been kind of poor. poor I haven't been doing that very well because I feel like um, I have no schedule. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> like I wake up and then it's like my life has been dictated by what's going on with him. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know what kind of advice you could say to me or like what what i would do differently i think it's just more so just like whenever i have free time like whenever he goes to sleep i try to do the things for me that i know i need to do mm-hmm. and so I just trying to be more flexible with my schedule personally yeah. but um um maybe you experience something similar with the cats and that like you know you, today you uh, told me that one of them had to go to the vet and mm-hmm. so it's just like prioritizing this life that you are taking care of and having to um, um, having that intertwine with your own priorities and trying to figure out how you're going to get, how do you get everything done? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that what you're doing is honestly what I'd say is just, if you, there isn't a way to make a, a set routine or be able to um, have that kind of certainty in your schedule, I think just fitting it in when you can or being able to kind of take a look at the the places where you might be able to fit in, you know, one minute of deep breathing or, you know, if you're doing dishes, like how can you have like a mindful moment with even dishes or like spend that time like listening to a song that's really uplifting for you or like how can you bring in those pieces of self-care into other places that maybe you wouldn't normally have them, but it just becomes essential to find a way to, um, like fit those in self-care during doing the dishes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that right. sounds like an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's like what you're thinking about while you're doing it. Like, right. Like, like if what you're we- singing or if you're dancing or uh-huh. if, um, like I kind of mentioned the mindful moment, like something that I, if I'm finding that I'm having a hard time, fitting in time to meditate or I'm just feeling really resistant to it that day for whatever reason, like being able to just like 
feel the water on because a lot of mindfulness is really about like what is happening in the present moment like what is it like to be a human right now like in every form so for me that's like what does the water feel like on my hands like what is that temperature like like what is the texture of the dish that I'm touching or like the soap or you know what are the feelings that are coming up in me as I am like finishing cleaning a dish and it looks really nice and there's some satisfaction there um so being able to take that time to just be really present even if it's just with a dish so i understand what you're saying but what would you say are the benefits to being that conscious of what's happening like i i'm sure this probably um relates to a lot of people out there that like for example when you eat a meal and you're watching TV, mm-hmm. you're not really thinking about how does the food taste? Right. What is what is what are the textures of the food? How does it smell? Like what does it look like? I think all of those things from probably a majority of people if you're sitting in front of a TV, which I think a lot of people do when they eat their meal, mm-hmm. it's like you miss out on all of that. And is that important? Yeah, I guess when we're talking about mindfulness, um it sounds like it is, but I'm I Guess from what would you say from your perspective? Like, what would you say are the benefits of being mindful of what? I guess what you said, what it's like to be a human to, mm-hmm. to sense these things. I from my perspective, I kind of mentioned the mind body connection earlier, um, and so being really present starts to help forge those connections a little bit more like understanding like how emotions live in our bodies how those affect us um like what is the the wisdom of the body that's maybe not making it to the brain because we're so distracted with other things Mm -hmm. um and just being able to like notice those changes in yourself like if you check in with yourself in that way often and you're really present in that moment like not only are you able to kind of appreciate the things around you a little bit differently or more like like with the food example um but you're able to to really start to know yourself in a different way where you're like oh like i am noticing that versus earlier like my shoulders are really really tense and i was not aware of that until i took a moment to just check in with oh how is my body in this very moment or mm-hmm. you know how is my how are my emotions how are my thoughts is there any value in being distracted ever oh yeah <laughs> so it's like you're not an advocate of always being mindful but there are certain times where there is value in it is that what you're saying mm-hmm. i think that as a practice having mindfulness be a part of your daily life in some capacity i mean ideally there would be you know, I think that the research shows that even just like 20 minutes, um, three to five times a week can really alter your brain um, and how, um, I don't know, like much more grounded you feel at any given time or like how much less your emotions can fluctuate um, that more steady feeling in yourself. So, yeah. Hmm. I'm trying to think. I mean, I... I get a lot of value personally out of being mindful when I am, um, well, I don't know. I guess I conflate the term mindful with meditating. Mm-hmm. Er, er, is there, is that the same thing where you are, well, I guess being mindful is like consciously directing your thoughts towards what's happening, whereas meditation would be just sitting there and allowing whatever thoughts to arise. Mm-hmm. I guess there's some some similarity, but some difference to that. Well, I would say 
that for me, because the way that I meditate is like mindfulness meditation, um, like I guess I'm kind of bringing that experience out of meditation into action. Like you can kind of bring that observational mind to things that you're doing. Um, as well as if you're just like sitting in meditation in that moment and just being really curious about what's arising, um, and like noticing the sensations of your body then too. I think there's, there's a lot of similarity, um, just with the focus of your meditation is your breath, typically, um, when you're in mindfulness meditation. Um, whereas then I guess you'd be switching the focus of your meditation to like the thing that you're doing to the action. Mm. So for me, there's, there's overlap. Um, so, um, in, in mindfulness meditation, if you have a thought, you're not, you're supposed to redirect your, your, your thought back to the breath, even Mm -hmm. when the thought arises, do you, you acknowledge the thought Mm -hmm. and, and then you go back to it? You're like, okay, I had the thought, but I want to think about my breath again. Is that kind of like the, the, the practice? Yes. And, Mm -hmm. and some people will, will name it and like, they'll be like, oh, that's a worry or like, oh, that's like, nah, it's a passing thought or. What's the benefit of, of naming it? It's, is it like saying like, I am aware that you are something that is like negative or, or pot, are you trying to assign like, like a, a value judgment to it or what, what's the, what's the point of that? I think it's more of the acknowledgement piece of just saying like, Hey brain, like I see you're trying to bring this thing to my attention right now. Um, but I'm kind of busy. So like, I'm, I'm aware that you're worrying about this. And right now I'm in this present moment because anytime that you start to go into your thoughts, you start going into the, the past or the future as opposed to what's happening right now. I think what's, what would be hard for me when it comes to, mindfulness meditation is I would struggle to let the thought go because maybe I want to explore it in more detail and I think that I'm never going to remember it. And Mm -hmm. so perhaps is, do you think it's acceptable? I mean, you can do whatever you want, but I wonder if people maybe have like a pen and paper and like the thought comes up, they write it down and then they go back to the breath, like just Mm -hmm. so they can capture it and like, address it later because i think that's my my biggest defense mechanism to letting the thoughts go is Mm -hmm. i don't want to lose them if i think that it's something i need to explore further and then the temptation in meditation is to then keep exploring it instead of going back to the breath right i think if you know that about yourself and you're saying like oh like i really cannot let this go because i i absolutely do not want to forget it then i think writing it down would be absolutely fine yeah um i think that would be a useful tool and um for me like i think of it more of like if it's really important it's going to come back um because a lot of the stuff that comes up in in those quiet moments um will sometimes recur i think it depends on how quickly your brain moves and moves on from different topics but um yeah for Mm. for me i'm i'm kind of able to let it go that way but if it was really important and I was like, I really want to journal about this later or I really want to spend a lot of time like introspecting on this, I would write that down. Yeah. So that's some good advice. Is there any other advice you would give to viewers out there that are interested in practicing mindfulness meditation? Yeah. Well, I think that a lot of misconceptions around mindfulness meditation, um, like I get told a lot like, oh, well, I, I can't clear my mind. Like I, I can't stop my thoughts. There's no way. Um, 
And I, a lot of people are kind of blown away when I'm like, well, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to like stop everything that you're thinking. It's, it's more about kind of taking that observational seat and being like, oh, look, there's a thought and not becoming attached to it. Um, and just really like focusing in back to the body sensation or back to that focus. Um, or even I suggest trying walking meditation, um, or even some sort of movement, um, movement, because for me starting out and sitting meditation, really difficult. Yeah. It's, um, it's really hard for me too. Mm -hmm. But walking meditation the way that we were taught, we move really, really slowly. So there was actually something about like moving my body and being super aware of my leg going from one place to the other and then shifting balance and then balancing on one leg as the next one was going to the ground. Something about that made it really, really easy to be present with the movement as the focus as opposed to the breath. Um, mm. And that was a way for me to be like, oh, wow, like I actually was really present with that as opposed to thinking about everything else. Hmm. I've actually, I swear by it, I feel like my best thoughts, my all my eureka moments come from going on a jog, mm -hmm. going on a run somewhere or sitting in. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I've, uh, I work in um, adult learning and one of the things that we talk about is this concept of uh, focus versus diffuse mode. And that, like, your brain is usually in focus mode trying to um, accomplish something. And then, like, there are certain things that we do, like sleep or meditation or exercise, that your brain slips into a different mode called mm -hmm. diffuse mode, where it's trying to, like, make sense of everything. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, like... A form of self-care is allowing you time for your brain to to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that in a society where we're not sleeping enough, we're not carving out time for meditation, we don't have t we're, we're too busy for exercise, like all these things, you're not letting your brain defrag like a mm -hmm. computer. It's not right. getting a chance to defrag your hard drive. And so you just everything's jumbled up and you got I think that's a huge part of self-care is, is making time for that diffuse mode. Right. Like doing versus being is like another way to look at that too. Like the acts of, of doing or, or just being, um, having a balance of both, I think is really useful. And if you're just doing, doing, doing all the time, um, then like you were saying, there's, there's not a chance for your brain to kind of get that rest or to really integrate anything that it's been learning or have a chance to even, like, look at, like, oh, what do I need for self-care? Like, how are you going to know that if your brain is in, like, doing mode all the time? Yeah. I saw this graphic that I think is relevant to what we're talking about. It mm -hmm. says, mind full versus mind full. Yeah. Learn to be present and enjoy the moment. Um, I struggle with this, though, because I, I have ADHD, and I'm, I've got a lot of thoughts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and... Yeah, meditation's hard for me. I still yeah. struggle with it. I struggle with wanting to do it. I struggle. I I know there's value in it, and it's hard. But it's still hard for me to to want to do it. But I'm definitely trying to prioritize it more. So many people have so many good things to say about it, and mm -hmm. I just wish I stuck with it more. Um, but um, is it? Would you say that meditation is something that you practice like on a regular basis in your own life? Not as regularly as I'd like to. Yeah. Like, I think I also struggle with some of that, like, wanting to do it or or making the time to do it, which is why I kind of focus more on how do I 
build mindfulness into other things that mm-hmm. seem less daunting than dishes <laughs> right yeah that seem less daunting than just like sitting in one place for 20 30 minutes yeah um but it's something that i also understand is it's like a practice like it's something to do and so when i am able to give myself some of that like self-compassion like yeah i see you really don't want to do that like yeah i get that that's a, that's okay um you know we can sit in that spot and maybe Maybe I won't get 20 minutes of meditation in, but maybe just the practice of sitting in that spot for 20 minutes and, you know, occasionally being like, oh, okay, like bringing my, coming back to my breath. Um, If I'm able to do that a few times, then that's, you know, better than not trying at all. So even just giving myself permission to sit there for five minutes and think about whatever, you know, might be filling my brain before being like, okay, let's turn inwards for a moment. So for our viewers out there, question how do you practice self-care uh comment below and we will uh read any of your comments that we get at the end of the podcast um so let's switch topics to this concept of inner child work this is a concept that you're familiar with as somebody who practices uh counseling uh and working on mental health uh, I'm not. I'm not familiar with this term. What is what does inner child work mean? So, inner child work is kind of based off of the theory or concept that each of us carries our own childhood self with us. Because in childhood, we develop so much of how we respond to like conflict or trauma or anything like that. Like we are so adaptable and so set for survival um, that when we're kids, we develop all sorts of great like habits and coping skills and things to like help us through that time um, that we end up kind of having to unlearn as an adult as we start being like more in charge of our own like lives and, and ways of, of being um, that we don't have when we're kids. So then there's this idea that, we have so like for me like maybe my inner child will pop up in times when i don't feel like i'm good enough or like i'm about to go into like a shame spiral like that for me is like my inner child coming up and being like whoa like we're not safe here this reminds us of being a kid and like not being in control or like not feeling good enough like let's have a reaction to this like let's you know, throw a tantrum or let's shut down or like whatever that childhood coping mechanism was to deal with stress or trauma or or conflict. um, Those will come up even in our adult selves because that's just the way that we've learned to deal with things. Mm -hmm. So inner child work is being able to work directly with that inner child for what they need in that moment. Mm -hmm. Is it like soothing? Is it like, you know, safety? Is it, um, you know, just being able to have that part of yourself be seen and acknowledged. So it's not about trying to change it. It's more about just recognizing who you became in your formative years and working with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Like self nurturing. Like there's even like a style of therapy called, I think, reparenting um, that is around like being your own parent that you, um, yeah, in that way for that inner child. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah 
I've never thought about being my own parent before, Brianna. <laughs> right. Well, I kind of mentioned this like guided imagery earlier, and I, I found this guided imagery like meditation that was all about the inner child, and you actually went through this piece of um like you went back to your childhood home and you like looked for your inner child and like found where they were and if they were you know in distress you like comforted them or like you told them like what you appreciated about them and like how they got you to this point and then you brought them back into the present with you um and like kind of showed them what your life is like and you know you have this converse it seems maybe a little silly but you have this conversation with them where you're like well you're safe now like i see you like, I am in charge of the situation. Like, you don't have to worry about you having to deal with this because I've got you. Like, I've got your back, kiddo. Um, so I think that that can be really powerful in a lot of ways. Like, if that's not, if that's something that you were looking for as a kid and, and weren't able to find that. Mm-hmm. You're, you're basically um, finding ways to self-soothe yourself. Mm-hmm. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's just another way to get into that so this is in a way it's another form of Mm self-care because you're you're like your own cheerleader right (laughs) cool um and then another term that i think you mentioned to me is something called uh parts work is that Mm -hmm. correct Mm -hmm. what is parts work so parts work is i guess somewhat similar to inner child work where there's this hmm I think that sometimes people become really identified with their self. And so part of my theoretical background is that like reality is an illusion and the self, you know, capital S self is an illusion, Mm -hmm. right? Like it is a construct that we have have built over time in order to like keep ourselves safe and then survive and you know move through life um so being (laughs) so being able to i think we like for me like i can get really caught up in like this is the kind of person that i am and then i'll make choices in line with that but with parts work what we're saying is this is part of who i am um And, you know, sometimes we might need to work with that specific part of ourselves, like the part of myself that doesn't want to meditate, you know, Mm -hmm. like that's a part of myself. That's not all of me. Like I, the whole person don't want to not meditate. Like there is a part of me that also wants to meditate. So when we deal with parts work, we're going to deal with the part of ourselves that want to meditate versus the part of ourselves that don't. And sometimes like facilitate a conversation between them or like really kind of dig into like what purpose um both of those parts have for being so what is the benefit of like parsing it out and like saying that it like compartmentalizing a portion of yourself what is the benefit of framing it that way for yourself what would like why why do this or why say it that way right um for me i think that it, it comes down to like not judging yourself or like accepting yourself Mm -hmm. um, and all of the parts of you that are there. So being able to say like, Oh, I have this part of myself that I'm not proud of is really different than being like, I'm not proud of myself or um, like, I feel shame about this thing. So I'm going to like really separate myself from that. Um, As opposed to if you refer to it as a part of yourself or like know that it is a part of yourself the there's i think at least for me i found that it's it's far less 
shameful mm-hmm. um, because there's that guilt versus shame. Like guilt is feeling bad about something you've done. Shame is like feeling like you are wrong or like you know, like you're bad or you know. Perhaps people are more open to working on it if they don't identify completely with it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I I can see that. I mean, I might start using that somehow. (laughs) Right. That's that's a good mental trick. Yeah. Yeah. I think of it too. So there's a couple things that I'm starting to to branch off a little bit. Um, Because one thing I think is really interesting um, that is that people used to not think that their mind, that their thoughts are their own. It's like this theory of the the bicameral mind. Um, and, And when we kind of became aware of our own thoughts being belonging to us versus I think early humans used to think that the thoughts in their head were voices of different gods. Yeah. Um, that might still be true. <laughs> right. You know, I don't who know. Knows? Um, we don't know, but we, you know, developed this concept of self. And so now we have ownership over these thoughts. Um, but going back into parts work helps us again, kind of detach from like every single thought in our head is, is a, becomes a value judgment about who we are mm-hmm. as people. And, um, Oh, I forgot the second one. There is another piece of that. Um, In relation to what? um, Parts work? Yes. Well, all I can say is I've given up a long time ago trying to figure out where my thoughts are coming from. (laughs) Oh, the mind parlor. That was it. Yeah. Like, I think that sometimes, too, like this applies to emotions as well. And so I've kind of theorized in, in my own mind that sometimes when it comes to accepting emotions and there and not attaching to them, I think of it like a foyer or like a parlor where all of your emotions are welcome to be there at any given time, but you get to decide who you let into the house, right? So you can go into the parlor and you can be like, Oh, Hey, like, what are you doing here? Shame? Or like, what are you doing here? Fear? Um, and you can kind of interact with them, but they don't have to follow you into the main part of your house. Mm. Um, you can kind of choose whether to invite them while still acknowledging that they're all there and they can come and go as they please into that space. Um, mm-hmm. but you don't have to attach to and, them. And that allows you to have more control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is a beautiful thing. Right. Um, wow. That's so weird. That's so wild. Yeah. <laughs> You're not allowed in my house anymore. Um, Interesting. I I feel like this is a podcast episode that I'll probably benefit a lot from personally with going back and watching it again, because these are concepts that I would like to, like I was talking about with meditation, like write them down and explore mm-hmm. them for th- further. I think that you could probably, um, like I know we're kind of probably just touching the surface of some of these topics, but there's a lot more to learn on how to maybe incorporate them into your own life. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, another topic that you mentioned to me that maybe you wanted to call out uh, from your perspective is the differences between community mental health and private mental health. What is that? What does that mean? Yeah. So I, I mentioned earlier that I used to work at an agency, um, which is community mental health. And that is, so I worked at an agency where we saw people that had Medicaid, um, so that we were working with, um, people that wouldn't otherwise have access to like private therapists and, and needed a place to be seen. Um, and so one of the great things about that is access, obviously, like people 
that need access to therapy, they can find it. Um, from the therapist or clinician side of things, like it, it means just a lot of a lot of hours, a high caseload, a lot of burnout, um, because there's just such a high need and there's just not enough professionals to fill that need or, um, you know, there's not very high pay because it is like in community mental health. Um, so there's a big difference there as far as like workload and, um, even being able to like work with your clients in the way that you want to, um, or that you have capacity for. So they talk so much about self-care because burnout is such a big part of community mental health. Um, I know that that was certainly starting to get to me and, and part of the reason why I shifted into um, a group private practice so mm -hmm. that now I have far less clients and I have far more capacity to like really be present with them um, versus kind of getting that burnt out feeling. Um, and I really enjoyed all my clients um, in community mental health and I miss them a lot and hope they're doing well. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely it's, it's more hard. of a mental burden. Hmm. Yeah, it's a lot. And I can't even imagine, like I left, um, shortly after the pandemic started and we all kind of moved to zoom calls. I can't imagine having been doing that with that caseload this whole time. Yeah. Especially with that population as you work with some of the younger kids too. And unfortunately that has to affect the quality of the the counseling, if you're burning out, if the counselors are feeling burnt out, like it has to show up in how you're interacting with them. I would suppose in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so I feel like the same conversation happens with like teachers and right. having too many students. Right. Yep. Yeah. Very similar. So what can be done about that? Just more, um, like the community mental health centers need to be, run run more compassionately <laughs> towards mm. the counselors or what do you mean yeah i think that there's there's multiple things is that mm, depending on on who is running the organization that can can be a big difference like if you have like someone that's been a therapist and has been doing this that is you know running things and that is a very different perspective than someone that is um coming in as someone that is knows how to run a business or a nonprofit. And um, so that can change things. I think funding is mm -hmm. also part of that too. And uh, I know in community mental health, like there are, are contracts with the government that are kind of restricting in, in how care is delivered versus yeah. how money is, is compensated. So it's just unfortunate though that. that somebody would somehow receive care that may be less um, less of a quality in any shape or form because they're on Medicaid versus they have the money to pay for private care. Mm -hmm. Like I, it would be in an ideal world, people would be able to receive good care from a counselor that isn't being overtaxed, um, regardless of whether they are financially, uh, you know, they have enough money to pay for it or not. I don't know. It's just, mm -hmm. It, yeah. it's it's a it's a goal to strive for in society yeah it's a big bummer and i think even too like the amount of turnover that happens because you know clinicians will stay for a year maybe two and then they'll move on and so that means that 
people that are in therapy for that length of time, like they might have gone through, if they've been there for a couple of years, they might have gone through several counselors in that time um, because it's hard to hold on to counselors when they're overworked and underpaid and all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is so. damaging to progress in the sense yep. that a lot of clients need to feel safe in order to open up and that takes time mm-hmm. right especially when working with kids and like younger populations like there are people that i worked with that it took me almost a year until they were like oh like i'm feeling okay opening up to you mm-hmm. um and it was really heartbreaking leaving and having them be like yep it's gonna take me a while to open up to someone else now i feel like i just started yeah. to open up to you that was really heartbreaking well, hopefully uh, the situations with community uh, mental health can improve over time. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Um, another another topic that you uh, wanted to bring up with me is your thoughts on psychedelics and mental health. Uh, what's your take on this? Yeah, so... There's a lot of um, research going on right now in the realm of using like psilocybin mushrooms, LSD, uh, MDMA, and ketamine um, as just kind of the top ones right now um, in in the therapeutic space. Um, I actually applied for a psychedelic therapy program that was being run between Naropa and MAPS and MAPS is, um, oh gosh, I can't remember what MAPS stands for. I don't know if you want to pull that up at all. Um, but they are an organization that is doing like doing a lot of the studies right now, um, with different types of psychedelics and therapy. Um, so I was really hoping to get into that program. Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so they are, they are all in this. They are running studies all over. Um, and, and it seems like they're, they're getting a fair ways with it um, since they're developing this, this program for people to come and learn how to um, use psychedelics in therapy. Now, it was a very popular program. Um, and now wasn't a great time to go, um, cause they were just really full, really fast. So hopefully maybe someday I'll get to learn more about that. Um, but it, it seems like it could be really useful and intense because when applying for that program, they said, Hey, are you willing to be with your client for eight to 12 hour sessions? Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously like if you're administering like MDMA or acid, anything like that, LSD, then you've you're going to have a whole journey, like a whole trip. Um, And if you're using that therapeutically, then your therapist would be there with you for that whole time. Mm -hmm. And I think that what's really promising and useful about that is, is a lot of the opening qualities of these different types of drugs, like, and the way that introspection changes. Um, So like some people might, experience LSD and have like a really existential experience and and feel really universally connected. Um, And we've seen studies using that in like terminally ill patients that have a lot more acceptance towards their upcoming death um, after experiencing something like that. Um, I have a, an article that's relevant to that. There was a CNN article that recently came out that said one dose of magic mushroom drug reduces anxiety and depression in cancer patients Mm -hmm. uh, for long term, not just like something that helps for 
the short term, but for like six months to a year out, like mm-hmm. still like transformative effects. Right. So this isn't like, this is serious business. Like this is stuff that's like has real medicinal value. Mm-hmm. I think they also said, um, I've seen articles about ketamine also being really useful for depression long term, um, where other antidepressants haven't been able to have that type of, um, like long-term after effect, you know, from one dose. Um, but yeah, and, and I think that MDMA is being used for PTSD. And I think that is really useful and, and heart opening as well. Um, it's just, it's such a, such a different way um, that people look at their, their lives and, and their bodies and connect in like thoughts in their brain, like when in those altered states, um, so, you know, since that's part of transpersonal psychology in some way, that altered state work, that makes sense that uh, that's something I'm very interested in knowing more about. So um, maybe we can get into a little bit of how you, your perspective on how this f- works. So maybe we could start by me saying how I think it works and I'm probably wrong. But I, I mean, my understanding would probably be that like drugs like mushrooms and LSD allow you to um, gain more access to maybe thoughts you've suppressed that then you could process. Whereas maybe drugs like MDMA um, help with the trauma associated with those thoughts so that you don't have a wall up or it's some kind of self-defense mechanism so that you're able to deal with it without the pain and suffering of thinking about them if they're traumatic. And I don't understand how ketamine works at all. Yeah. But that, that's my basic understanding. What would you say? Or is it is way more complicated than that, probably? Um, but how would you? How do you explain this to like people who are... There's probably a lot of people out there that are just like, these things are illegal, they've been illegal, there's no, there's no value. People who use these things... Like they're, you know, they there's just so much negative stig- stigma attached to illegal drugs, um, and so I think, I I think it would be good to be able to explain this, uh, like the mechanisms of action to people, so they understand how it's helping people in a therapeutic setting. Mm-hmm. Um, I I wish that I knew more about the mechanisms of how it works. Um, that is not something that I have deeply deeply studied at this time that's fine um but i i think too that part of what i hear from people and and from personal experience that is really useful is um it, it i think that many drugs kind of bring this this theory of the self being an illusion to light mm-hmm. um because i think in a lot of those spaces you aren't as attached to you know your identity in that moment so, you know even as far as people on on LSD and, and mushrooms, maybe even experiencing what they call ego death, um, which is, you know, exactly what it sounds like, the death of the ego. I mean, I can personally say that I've experienced through psychedelics this feeling of interconnectedness with everyone, mm-hmm. that we're all connected somehow. And I didn't know what that meant, but it felt truer than anything I've ever felt. Like, I knew it was true. I just right. didn't know why I felt it. Right. That's just weird. <laughs> yeah, like that universal quality is is really huge um as far as being able to not be like not fear other people as the enemy so much or to be able to have more empathy for other people or even to have more empathy for yourself like in context of that. Um I think that that's 
also a big part of it is kind of that, that stepping outside of yourself and being able to like look in without that emotional reaction or um, attachment. Yeah. And so there's a lot of value in that that can translate into a therapeutic setting. Mm-hmm. Um, something else that I wanted to bring up, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but um, there is this app that Paul Stamets created. He's a um, mycologist and it's called Quantified Citizen. And I, I recently just had a friend do this. They have a microdosing study where you anonymously participate with this app and you like answer questions and play games that are like tests and you submit all this data over a 90 day period of microdosing mm-hmm. psilocybin mushrooms and they're gathering anonymous data from like across the world from all these people. <laughs> wow. That's so <laughs> like cool. they're just doing their own study. And, um, I don't know, I think just think this is so cool. So anyone who's out there, I wish they had an Android version. Oh. Uh, they only have iPhone right now, but, um, I don't know. I think stuff like this is so cool. That is super cool. Yeah. I love that. Um, but. And I love that it's kind of like, it's the anonymous study. It's being done by, you know, identifiable sources. Um, cause I think that a lot of research these days is, is you have to be really careful about who funds it and like kind of knowing what the potential biases are going into it. So being able to say like, Hey, like here's the people we're running it. Here's why we're running it. Here's where the data is coming from. I think that's a different kind of study. Um, than maybe some of the other studies we see often. Yeah. And I, I think the problem is like your average person probably doesn't know how to detect between something that is valid and something that is not mm-hmm. you know it's a problem especially in the like the we're st- i think we're still living in the wild wild west of the internet where like anything can be posted anything can be shared anything can be anonymous mm-hmm. i don't think it's going to be this way forever maybe not in our lifetime but i'm i mean but i hope that that will lead to a world where we have a way to um figure out what is the truth and what is you know, a manipulation, but I guess, right. I don't know how, to, how we're going to get there, but hopefully we will eventually. Um, well, how do you figure out what is the truth in a world where there are so many truths, right? Cause everyone's that's, that comes back to, again, the piece of reality is an illusion because like there has to be an agreed upon reality mm-hmm. that people come to since everyone is bringing their own reality and their own perceptions of the world to the surface. Yeah. It's a good point. It is. That's another podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what about this? So when it comes to um, learning more about psychedelics and mental health, is there, are there any resources that maybe you would recommend to viewers out there that are interested in this topic? Um, definitely maps is a good one. Um, hmm. I mean, I think that there's a lot of, oh, there's, there's I'm just a thinking- lot of older research too, but maps mm-hmm. I think has got the, the edge on the current. Gotcha. I think, I just think there's probably a lot of people out there that probably think 
man, I would really benefit from psychedelic therapy. Where can I go to do this? And then the answer is probably nowhere yet. <laughs> right? Or like, it's there isn't a, a whole lot of options. Yeah, there is. I don't know if this is easily searchable or not, but there are people that do psychedelic therapy currently. I don't know how it works, and I don't know how they're able to yeah. do it. Do a Google um, search. Yeah, but there, there are people that are doing it in some way or form right now if mm -hmm. that's something that people want to look into i have a book to recommend that i listen i listen to the audiobook but i really like this author michael pollan he wrote how to change your mind what the new science of psychedelics teaches us, us about consciousness dying addiction depression and transcendence and uh this is a really uh really good read yeah um so definitely check this guy out if you're interested in the in the topic because i think that um it's going to make a big difference in people's lives when psychedelics become more mainstream and commonplace with uh in conjunction uh in a, like a therapeutic setting mm -hmm. in therapy because i think it um lets people let down their guard it lets people trust their therapists uh, a lot quicker um, and open up to them more, which I think allows the healing to, to occur and allows them to like get their thoughts out and make sense of them. Um, so I think there's a, a lot of good there if it can be supervised by a professional and keep them feeling safe and comfortable throughout the process. Because mm -hmm. I guess some of the pushback would be, well, what if they have a traumatic experience a quote-unquote bad trip like mm -hmm. how do you keep that person um safe and comfortable and be able to rein it in mm -hmm. god forbid it becomes um out of control so i don't know I, and there's a lot of propaganda out there around those types of drugs that i think people go into maybe are going to go into um a therapeutic session with those maybe uh, thoughts that are about what it it's going to be like, and then that somehow negatively impacts the experience, mm -hmm. you know? Like, um, so, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's what the professional is for, or even, you know, people that do this recreationally, why they have trip sitters is people that are, are able to kind of change the environment or be able to, like, distract you or, like, talk you down from those negative thoughts um like introduce new sensations or things um so i think that being able to but i mean i, I certainly think that that's got to be part of the training is to be able to figure out like what are those ways that are helpful to people that are starting to have a bad trip um or are starting to go maybe down a more negative path um versus yeah yeah i think maps actually has a whole guide on psychedelic crisis counseling. Cause mm -hmm. I interviewed, I actually had somebody on a podcast a year ago on psychedelic crisis counseling and he worked for the Zendo project, which oh, partners nice. with right. maps. Yep. yep. And so this is all very familiar to mm -hmm. me. Um, so yeah, if you're interested in, in this, check out maps and what the Zendo project does. They actually, uh, have a, a tent at uh, Burning Man oh, and awesome. they do psych psychedelic crisis counseling there because it's much needed. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like um, like going to Shambhala and they've got 
the people on staff um, that are are available. We have a safe space. It's available for people. Mm-hmm. It's very non-judgmental. You can go and, yeah, I think that's that's wonderful resources for people to have. Yeah. Um, and then our final topic, uh, you wanted to talk about something called an Enneagram. And this is something that I've never heard of before. Uh, I'm familiar with um, a Myers-Briggs personality test, but this is something similar but different? Yeah, so I'm kind of a nerd about this. <laughs> like, I've I've done a, spent a lot of time with it, and... So one thing about Myers-Briggs that is really interesting is that I would say that I am an XNFX because no matter how many times I test my E or my I or my J or my P are so close to 50% that they they change at mm-hmm. any given time. Oh, so you assign it an X to mean I'm in the middle? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I can go either way at any time, but the only con- consistent part is the N and the F, the intuitive and the feeling. Um, and so I, I just thought that that was kind of interesting that from any given time in this personality test, I could be an INFJ or an ENFP or, you know, any combo of that. Why do you think yours changes? Um, or do you think that it's normal for it to change? I think that, well, again, it's, it's just how close to the middle you are like that. Like for me, I said I was, I was pretty ambiverted, so I can go either way oh, on I that. See. And then the judging and perceiving, I think, just over time. And it really depends on the situation. So I'm barely in the middle there as well. Um, but what so, I. So some people are closer to the middle, and some people are. If, if you're like farther to one side, then you're probably going to get the same result every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, exactly. And it'll be more consistent then. Whereas if I take Myers Briggs when I'm feeling really extroverted and energetic and like open to the world. Um, then I'll probably test as an ENFP. And if I take it later that day and I'm feeling like burnt out or like, you know, emotionally exhausted or whatever, then I might test in as an INFJ. Um, so for me, like, I don't love that flexibility. Like, it's it's kind of nice to know that about myself that I can go either way in these areas. But um, for me, I think that there's a piece of like the Enneagram typing system that uh, accounts for people's how they change throughout their life, first of all, like how they move towards um, like growth or integration um, versus how they act when they're absolutely stressed out and they're kind of in that period of of disintegration is how they refer to it. Um, So in Enneagram typing, there's nine types um, in their numbers. So it's a little bit strange. Like, oh, like you're, I'm like, I'm a two. Um, And then, so they're, they're each very different and then they're, broken up so the enneagram is like the shape right i don't know if we can pull a picture of that yeah so that interesting shape that you can see there is is the enneagram um and there's all of these different triads that they're broken up into um so like there is three numbers that are part of the feeling triad three numbers that are part of the thinking triad and uh and then oh i can't remember what the third one is but they're they're all broken up like that and there's also they're broken up into different um like base emotions okay anger fear and image is that what we're talking about these three yes and an image like i've usually seen that explained as shame okay um like self-image maybe is more of that so yeah like two three four is part of the shame um triad and then 
seven, five, six, seven is fear, and then eight, nine, and one is anger, are kind of those base emotions that people work out of. But it, it ends up really differently because so nine is like the peacemaker. Like they are the people that are super conflict avoidant, and um, they just want, want to help people and, and have things be really harmonious. So it's really interesting that the base emotion is anger because you wouldn't think that when you met those that person so being able to notice the difference um between like what that person's base emotion that they're working out of is is interesting and so so i guess i don't understand so like when you say their base emotion is anger but they're a peacemaker are you saying that anger is what they normally feel or is anger what they're afraid of experiencing or like, what do you mean? I think both. Both. <laughs> I think that, um, maybe for nines, like that feeling of anger, like they don't really feel like they're allowed to feel it. And so it comes out in like, let me make peace here because I'm not allowed to feel anger, even though I'm so, I have so much anger here. Uh-huh. Like this is how I deal with that anger. Um, whereas eight or one, they're a little bit more externalizing with that. Okay. So I understand that this is compartmentalized into three different chunks between anger, fear, and self-image. Um, but what are the arrows again? Did you st- talk about that? Or so those are the arrows Why are of, the numbers connected? Yes. So those are the arrows of growth or integration and, and stress or disintegration. So you'll notice that... So So there's two... If you notice there is an arrow going from two to four, and that's a black arrow. So that means that when twos are in periods of growth or they're like maybe what they they would say as particularly healthy um, in moving towards their goals and so on and so forth, um, they act more like fours. They become more individualized. They become more romantic. They become more creative and expressive. Um, whereas you'll notice that the red arrow from two is going to eight. So then if you're in a period of stress or in disintegration, you might start acting more like an eight who is, is more of that, like more aggressive type. Um, um the, yeah. yeah. So, so when it's go, if you're a two, if you're a helper, mm-hmm. if things are going good, you're more like a romantic artist. And when things are going bad, you're more like a boss leader. Right. Is that what it's saying? Yes. Okay. Exactly. So that's where it flexes a little bit in like how you show up at any given time that the Myers-Briggs doesn't necessarily have. Interesting. And the Enneagram also likes to look at um, like when you do the testing for it and they typically ask you to answer the questions as like your child self, like before you've kind of put into place coping mechanisms and stuff. Um, So eh, what is a good example of this? If you were to ask me... Mm. when I was a kid, like what my reaction to being rejected on the playground is, my reaction as a kid would be like, I would go cry about it. Whereas, you know, like right now, if I get rejected on the playground, I would be like, oh, you know, that's Whatever. not as big of a deal. <laughs> yeah. Like I would have ways of being like, yeah, that hurt, but like, I'm okay. Like I don't, so, you know, yeah. Um, so answering those questions from that younger place might give you more of a, a look into what is kind of the base before the adaptation skills. Mm-hmm. So what, what is the point of this? It's just a better way to know yourself, but then what do you do? I guess, what would a person do with this information? Um, I think that knowing kind of the base. So again, to like, if you like look at the literature from Riso and Hudson, um, who've who've put this out, 
um, they'll kind of give you like base desires as well and base fears. So again, for two, like the base and like want desire is like, I want to be loved. And the fear is like, I'm not going to be loved. Um, so like knowing those types of things and like looking more into the ways that, uh, this, how you are, I guess, um, or how you show up in any situation can really help you to be intentional with working with those things. Like you can bring these types of things into therapy and be like, Oh, like I like totally freak out when I feel like mm -hmm. someone doesn't like me or, you know, when they're going to abandon me and like, here's how this is as part of my background and how I've, I've come to be. Yeah. Um, so being able to see those things about yourself, I think is really useful. Um, and it kind of comes back around to like using archetypal ways of looking at the self in order to promote healing as well. Interesting. So basically, it's like knowing yourself is important. Pre it's a, an important prerequisite to effective um, working on yourself. Mm -hmm. It's like you need to know like how do you operate and who you are, and in, that can be that's like part of your um, part of the important information that you bring to therapy. Mm -hmm. And maybe some people start therapy and they're like, they don't even have answers to those questions. And then it, everything takes longer because you still need to figure those things out. Right. Or even just how to determine like how you feel um, in any given time or like why you react to things the way that you do. Um, like that is, can be a lot of work that ends up being done in therapy if that's not something that comes naturally to you or you've been taught how to do previously. So for the viewers out there, I'm sure they're thinking, I want to take this test or something like what, what can people do if they want to know like, what is, what are, is their number or yeah. Right. Their number. Um, I would say that you could go to the Enneagram Institute website um, and you can either look through all the different numbers and see like what resonates. Or if you Google um, Enneagram personality test, you should be able to find um, a test. I believe that the one that's done here when it says take the ready on the bottom left, I believe that that is a paid test. Mm. Um, but there are, so it looks um, like it's only 12 bucks. Yeah. So if you want to go through the Enneagram Institute, that's a way to do that. Considering the other, uh, personality tests that I've seen online, it's actually pretty cheap. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> comparatively. Yeah. Um, but there are places that you can find it online, um, for, free as well oh, okay. um, or if you want to pick up a book like usually most of the books will have the test in them as well and then you get all the added benefit of like getting really deep into how this was theorized and like what it means about your type why do you think myers-briggs is so much more mainstream than this uh, what causes one to take off more more than another because I've just never heard of this, that's all. And I always hear people be like, oh, my Myers-Briggs is this. I mean, mm -hmm. It just seems so much more commonplace. I wish I knew the answer to that. <laughs> I mean, I think that there's something about it. Is something, something you thought about? Yeah, like, uh, as far as... I think that why it's so mainstream is because it started being used corporately. Like, mm -hmm. people started using personality tests within companies in order to help make more cohesive teams or be able to help each other figure out how they work and to work better. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that is part of why that that's come more into, like, the mainstream opinion versus other personality typing. Um, 
And and this one is is complicated too. Like I really only scratched like the very very top of that surface because we didn't even talk about wings or instincts or anything about yeah <laughs> like how much deeper that can go. Um, so it's just it's just not as easy to explain, I think, and and requires an amount of introspective that's not really useful in the, the yeah, corporate world. I see. Um, but it doesn't make doesn't mean that there aren't better systems out there. It's just that sometimes simpler uh, maybe gets adopted quicker or in a, mm-hmm. in a, it scales better yeah but. or the things that you learn are more useful to the workplace right because if you're just on the myers-briggs you're learning if you're an extrovert or an introvert you're learning if you're like more in like the way that you get in, in information is like more intuitive or more um like sensing is that what the s is yeah mm-hmm. um and then like feeling versus thinking and then judging versus perceiving like those are all things that relate to like how you are are how you do in the world versus how you be in the world i guess gotcha um okay so uh do we have time to answer a question from the audience is that cool um so Liv houseman writes what would you suggest for people that have time for self-care but have trouble feeling motivated to want to do it yeah, that's that's really tough. Um, and I think that that can be one of the biggest um, like barriers to self-care. And certainly when you're in a pandemic and, and motivation feels like it's at an, an all-time low, you know, people are kind of dealing with that, that, I don't know. For me, at least, it feels like a sluggishness. And the way that I've dealt with that is... is I'm really resistant to routines. I don't like routines. Um, yeah, it's not my favorite thing. I like to be a little bit more open with my schedule, but having some kind of a loose routine is really helpful in being able to like build in self care. Because like I said earlier, if I like get up and I exercise and then I shower and I meditate and I eat breakfast, like these are become part of my my sequence of events that leads to a new habit. Um, and so I think that part of self care that if you're struggling with motivation to do it, and it's not something that you want to do, building it into a series of habits might be useful because then you don't have to want to do it necessarily. It's just something that you do habitually. So if you can build it into other things that you are going to be doing or that you want to do, that might be a way to, like build that habit as well. Okay. Well, uh, Brianna, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, how can people reach you if they have any questions related to mental health? Um, so if you've already seen this on Facebook, you can reach out to me there. Um, I also have a Twitter account um, at Tiger Oddity. You can reach out to me there. Um, and yeah, feel free to ask me any sort of questions if anything wasn't clear or if you want to know more. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions or point you towards other resources. All right. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Till next time. Bye.